Good evening. Welcome back for Sunday night worship. Glad you are here, especially if you are a, a guest. And if you came here as a guest of the Abraham family or you're part of the Abraham family, we're glad you're here as well. On Sunday nights, we are in a series called Training the Twelve. And the goal with this series is to examine the principles and practices that Jesus taught and gave to uh, his apostles. And how we can adapt those in our lives as well. And so Steve started off this series looking at the individual apostles. And then we've gone through a couple of different series and we finished uh, the last time we were doing this series on Sunday night. We were working on prayer. And that's what we can have finished up. And then tonight we start the new series. And we're going to examine the subject of humility. And so as we think about that um, and what it is and maybe what it isn't, I hope it will be helpful to you. If you uh, have happened to have chickens and a lot of little chicks... Uh, there is a unique phenomenon that happens among chickens, particularly baby ones as they're very young. And that is the idea of the pecking order. There's one chicken, a little baby chick, and he can pick, peck whoever he wants to. No matter what's going on, he can just peck at anybody. And uh, no other chick, baby chick, can peck him. And so it kind of works downward until all the other chickens finally had this one baby chick that just gets pecked on by everybody. And he has no one to, to pass it down to. In the world, the idea of the pecking order is pretty strong. Where you work at, who's at the top of the pecking order? Everybody kind of wants to move up that order. Nobody likes to be at the bottom. Uh, that happens in the world. It happens at work. It prob probably, not probably, it does happen at school. Who's the most popular kid in your class? Who can do whatever he desires? Who catches all the flack from everyone else? Parents see that within their children and they say, I don't want my kid to be at the bottom of the pecking order. So they need to do things that will make them more popular so they get to be Closer to the top. Unfortunately, that kind of attitude can also creep into the church. I don't think it does much here at Northside. But you've probably heard stories of church politics. Churches sort of orbiting around that one person with the deepest pockets or the most influence or a family that's gone there for years. And they're at the top of the pecking order. There is one truth that you need to know about the pecking order, and that is this. Jesus hated it, and he didn't want his followers to live by it. To do that, we have to ask the question, uh, how? How do we keep such a, an order from influencing the kingdom of God? It would surprise you that the apostles were very excited that Jesus was becoming as popular as he was. Imagine for a minute that your best friend 
Very popular guy, very well-liked. People love him. Crowds begin to follow him. And they're going to elect him president. And you're his best friend. Or one of his 12 best friends. And you start to get thoughts in your head. All right. (laughs) This is going to be pretty good. Life's going to be pretty sweet. These thoughts I know crept into the minds of the apostles. Not just because they were human beings, but also because the scripture tells us that they thought these thoughts. As Jesus became more popular and as he became more prevalent among the people. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. And listen to what the tax collector writes. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them and said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus flipped things around. That the greatest just so happened to be of the least. That those who would be exalted most would be those who were most humble. But I asked the question of this question, who is the greatest? Why would the disciples even ask such a question? That's pretty brazen, don't you think? Pretty out there. It's not the only time they've asked it, as Scripture records. Well, to do that, we've got to look at a little bit of historical context. We need to understand that it's been about, at the time that Jesus was living, it's been about a thousand years since Israel has had a king of a united nation. It's been uh, just uh, several hundred years since they've had a king at all. There is no greatness in Israel, not the way that it used to be back in the glory days. I'm sure the Israelites were fond of talking about the stories they'd heard about Solomon's temple, about the successes they'd had in battle, about the great kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And they had been under this system for so long That when Jesus, a guy who seems particularly king-like, you can imagine their excitement, the thoughts in their head, that they no longer have to bow their knee to Caesar. Because we've got a king who can do miracles. We can overthrow Rome because we've got a guy who can heal sickness and disease. It was only, in my mind reasonable and logical that would have asked the question, who is the greatest? Jesus was king. And what do kings do? But they start new kingdoms and they expand and grow them. It is good to be king, but if you can't be king, it's good to be close to the king. And here they were. Here they found themselves. And yet Jesus answers their question by saying, you misunderstand greatness. You see, they were thinking about an earthly kingdom. But Jesus had something very 
different in mind. To teach them about the kingdom that he wanted to start, they had to learn this value of humility. And so he pulls a little child in his lap and he said, like this child. And he's not saying be childlike in the sense of being immature or being uh, foolish. He's saying being childlike. Well, A.B. Bruce put it like this. To have humility like a child means there is absolutely no pretentiousness. A child of a king will immediately, without hesitation, play with the child of a beggar without a second thought. Disregarding rank and distinctions, thinking not of their place in the kingdom, but giving themselves up in simplicity of spirit to the service of the king. This is humility of a child. When we talk about humility, we we learn a couple of things from scripture. One is we know, of course, that Jesus did it perfectly. And yet... For mastering the art of humility, he still wrestled with it. I think when Jesus was approached, when he was asked about being, about this new kingdom, and he knew they were thinking of an earthly kingdom, surely in his mind he must have thought, I'd be a good king. I could restore the entire world to the way it was supposed to be. Luke twenty two forty two, which we've looked at before, but it's the prayer where Jesus went to the Father and he said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. He did it perfectly. And yet even Jesus had to continually work at it. The apostles, they never got it right, until seemingly until Pentecost. Up until, surely up until the cross, they thought he's going to be king. I mean, a week before the cross, they knew he was going to be king. They had him on a donkey. They had palm leaves down. They had to be excited. It is uh, unbelievable in their minds to imagine that merely a week later, he'd be hanging on a cross like a common criminal. They didn't understand the will of God, nor how to submit to it. Which is the third point. We must choose humility. It's something that you have to choose and that doesn't come naturally. Steve talked this morning from Philippians chapter 2 and talking about unity and having the same mind. He, he says there in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's verse 5. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself Nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance of a, as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He did it perfectly. That doesn't mean it was easy. Humility is the key to serving well, and serving well is the key to leading well. Sounds sort of backwards that a person who is humble would be exalted. It doesn't seem to make sense, but it's foundational if we understand the kingdom of God. This is what kingdom humility is about. Kingdom humility is then yielding to God instead of yourself. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 4 says, Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. When you say the word humility, sometimes people get in mind, you know, I got to kind of, and I'm never good enough. Such a worm as I. And that's not what humility means. I believe it was Rick Warren who said it originally, but it's hard to trace with the Internet. It's either Rick Warren or Abraham Lincoln. I don't know. He says a lot of things he didn't say. But he said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You need to understand you're a child of the king. And he has given you certain gifts and skills and abilities and perspectives and worldview and insight that no one else has. And you should not downplay that. When the scriptures say that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, when you say, well, I'm not much, I'm just a worm, you're insulting your creator who made you and designed you with purpose and for a purpose. So this idea of humility is not putting yourself down. It is just not making yourself the center of attention. So now I want to turn to Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. We're going to hang out here for just a few minutes. And this is where we talk about parents getting involved. I said imagine for a minute that your best friend was about to become president. Now imagine for a moment, if you can, one of your children happens to be best friends with a guy who's about to become president. What are your thoughts as a parent? Ah, success. I've had a successful child. They are going to be powerful and influential and be able to speak to power. Maybe you'll think about requests that you could ask, pardons that you could ask. If you understand that insight, then you understand what we're about to read. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, be James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He said. She asked, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. This mother is doing what every good mother would probably do. Come on, step forward. Go ahead, ask the question. You need, you know, just that... I want you to be successful, but let me help just a little bit. 
probably most of you would do the same. I mean, think. Why do parents have their children do the things that they do? Uh, Sports is an easy one. Hours and miles and dollars invested into sports. Why? Well, there's a thought there. I want them to be successful. We all do that. Parents do that. We want success for our children. And what she seeks for James and John is royalty in this new kingdom. To sit in the right and the left, that was a, a place of absolute honor and distinction. But the question had to be a reminder to Jesus, Satan goading him just a little bit. Ah, you can still be king if you want it. Verse 22, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. She was thinking of physical power and position for herself, for her sons. She was thinking of a kingdom of this world. And Jesus was thinking of a far different kingdom. He knew his crown would be one of thorns. He knew the ones on his right and his left would be criminals. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? The wise rabbi asked her. Now see, in scriptures this is important. Rabbi would know this. The cup represented suffering. Always. She thought they were talking about just a cup. They, they all thought that. They missed it. We can, they answered. The sons of thunder. Pra- brash. <clears throat> proud. Lion-hearted. Leaders. Imagine what they were thinking. We'll command the kingdom. Second only to the king. We'll command his armies and his navies and his infantries. will reign with strength. Indeed, they would have. In a worldly kingdom, they probably would have been great leaders, sons of thunder, commanders of armies, fearless. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. You will indeed drink from my cup. I don't think they understood how much they would suffer and lose because they chose to follow Jesus. Indeed, if we follow out the history of the apostles, we all know uh, most all of them became martyrs. You can drink from the cup. And yet, Jesus maintained his humility, yielding an earthly kingdom for one far superior. Humility. Now, verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Another word of way of saying indignant is, that's not fair. James, John, what are you doing asking for the right and the left? You're supposed to wait till we ask for the right and the left. Then you ask the question. We've got jealousy and anger and indignation indignation at the other ten. Betrayed at their political ambitions. And Jesus, wisely, the teacher, says this, verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, You know 
that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's saying there, you know that even among ungodly people who do not know the God of Abraham, their rulers lord it over their servants. And that's true even today. Powerful people use their power. That's the currency of politics. It's not money. It's power. The one who yields the most power yields the most influence. Those who make the rules rule. And they are in favor with many. Because they often don't have to abide by the rules that they set up. I know that doesn't happen today. Verse 26, not so with you. This kingdom is a different kingdom. Jesus' followers are going to influence the world in very different ways. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. I would imagine that Israelites kind of recoil at the word servant because that brings back part of their history that they'd rather not relive. When the Pharaoh's word governed their lives, when the Pharaoh's masters governed their behavior and their jobs. Listen. Think about who Jesus called for a second. He called the common, the ordinary, the uneducated. Why? In my opinion, one of the reasons he called those people is because it's easier to be for them to be a servant. If he had called leaders and royalty and rulers, those people have a much harder time bowing their knee. Think about who he called kingdom people to be. Think about these these, uh, animal illustrations. Doves and sheep. These powerful animals, animals that you hope to get in the in this, uh, supply? No. You want the strength of the ox and the lion. What's Jesus saying here? Saying we're going to be a different kind of kingdom. Verse 27, And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. How do you be great? How do you be great? In the world system, it's about power, influence, fame, money, skill set. If you have one of those categories to the nth degree, then you can wield all kinds of influence. And so what do we strive for, even as Christians? Power, fame, money, intelligence, skill set. It's not saying we can't have those things as Christians. We just have to understand that's not where our greatness will come from. In the kingdom, there's only one way to be great, and that's to serve. Now, In the kingdom, 
Greatness only follows servitude. You have to have service first, humility first, then exaltation, then greatness. We flip that around. We want, we want the greatness and the exaltation first. That's not the way it happens and certainly not the way it should happen in the kingdom. We can think of modern day examples. Of course, we know that Jesus set the example of washing one another's feet. Um, we just came, most of us were here for the honoring of Justin and Cindy Abraham. Now, of course, they were elders and, and uh, elder's wife, and, and that's certainly a position of honor to honor. But what made them great at what they did? Was it their power or fame or prestige or money or intelligence or skill set? I'm not saying they don't have those things. That's not what made them great. That not, that's not what continues to make them great. It's how they serve. Steve and I went to um, the hospital room in Bob Kingsley's last hours. And as we were there... Of course, Justin came by. Now, Justin had already stepped down as an elder. I mean, he was no longer officially an elder. But he was still doing shepherding kind of stuff. Because that's what a servant does. He's not worried about the title. He's not worried about whose job description it fits. He just does what he knows is right to do and what pleases the master most. Particularly with, and both Justin and Cindy have done that. With Justin in particular, I've looked up to him as a model, as a husband. Uh, with, with Cindy's declining health, um, she's had trouble with her eyes. And so he is always there at her side, guiding her. But even before then, I'm not sure Cindy Abraham has ever opened a car door for herself. Why? He's a great husband. Not because he is worried about the title, or prestige, or Toby looking up to him, or any of you for that matter. He's just doing what pleases the master. And whether he shepherded you or prayed with you, uh, certainly Justin is a prime example of what we're talking about. Humility. Not thinking less of himself or herself, but thinking less... Uh, not thinking of him, but thinking of himself or herself less. Putting others, their, their needs above your own. We had a great example this past week. Um, and I really struggle with whether to put this, to talk about this particular example. Because I'm doing the lesson. And so you think, oh, Aaron, let's go to the Toby show now. Not it at all. I told Mike, you know, who's learning the ropes of work camp, I said, you're going to find out real quick. It's not Toby doing 98% of this stuff. It's Northside. It's crew leaders and people leading the food team and people decorating and people babysitting the children of the other servants so the servants can serve. It's finding housing. It's... Arranging 400 t-shirts and trying to find everybody's shirt size. It's 
taking pictures and editing them and and organizing them. It's sorting through supplies so that 20 different groups can do work all over town. It's doing work in January and February when there's snow on the ground, taking pictures and meeting homeowners for work that's going to occur in June. It's sorting through 250 styrofoam cups and 20 bags of ice every day so there's a cool cup of water for someone to enjoy at their lunch break. It's setting up staging and lighting. It's organizing 130, 140 ladders. It's a whole team of people dedicated to making thank you notes that I can sign but that I didn't create so that I can thank all the hundreds of people who were involved in serving. It's people who hang signs and provide security and send out press releases and organize popsicle patrols. I didn't do any of that. That's what servants do. I don't want you to miss... Uh, understand what I'm about to say, but this is what makes Northside so great. Not in the braggadocious sense that, oh, look at us. It makes us great in the Jesus sense. The greatness comes from those who serve. This is our culture at Northside, a culture of servants. Christians are not called, I'm sorry, are called not to be served, but to serve. With humility of spirit. Christians are called not to be served, but to serve. When you come to Northside and you think, ah, big congregation, got lots of stuff going. Can't wait to just sit back and take it all in. Well, you probably won't stay at Northside very long. Because if you're at Northside, uh, you don't sit in one place very long. You're serving. My grandfather used to say of my grandmother, it seemed like she had a spring in her behind. She would never sit down. Well, I see a lot of that at Northside. People just can't sit down and relax. Because there's work to do. And they do it with such a great attitude. This this morning, when Steve called out specifically Cheryl Lahari, Christy leaned over and said, Cheryl's mad. <laughs> because she does, she's not worried about the accolades. And we're still going to give her accolades, but she's not worried about that. So I'll give you five things, and then we're done. Humility is learned. We're going to talk more about this idea of humility, but how we learn it is by doing a lot of what, you know, a great place to learn humility is at Northside. Because we believe that people have gifts, and those gifts ought to be used. Number one, serve God. He ought to be your very first thought in the morning. He ought to be the one, he ought to be the why behind the what of almost every part of your day. Number two, serve your family. Be a great spouse. Be a great mom or dad or grandparent. It's easy to get caught up in work and, uh, you know, digital distraction. But serve them. Give them the best of what you've got because uh, you won't have them forever. Your days will be numbered just as theirs are. Number three, 
Serve your employer. I know it's easy to come in a few minutes late, take a few minutes checking Facebook and all that, but Colossians tells us that we ought to serve as though we're working for the Lord. And so give your best to to your employer tomorrow morning. I mean, just, just go that extra mile in nearly everything you do. Number four, serve your church. Church shouldn't be a place where you think about what I didn't get or who didn't recognize me or what title am I going to get or when they're going to ask me to be a deacon or a ministry leader or an elder. Church ought to be a place where you serve. You say, you know, that teacher's been teaching that class a long time. I bet I could, I bet I could sit in with that teacher and, and co-teach with them, and then I bet I could give them a break. That would be a good thing. You know, uh, we've got a lot of people who have been doing a lot of the same jobs for a long time. And not that they don't love doing it, but we need that service-mindedness uh, in our church. And number five, serve strangers. Hebrews tells us that remember to serve strangers and show them hospitality because doing so we've served angels without knowing it. And I believe that there's something to that and how we treat one another. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. For three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled over 200 miles from where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends went, ran away. Some of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through a mockery of trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his clothing. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty long centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece. Of all human history. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as powerfully as his solitary life. Jesus could have been a king, but he couldn't do that and save us too. And so he laid down his kingship in this world. And by his own humility, he redeemed us. May we practice that. May we learn to serve and be humble. He went to the cross that we might have a crown. May we lay down our crowns and walk in the way of the cross. If you have a need tonight, we pray that you might come. That you might humble yourself before the Lord, to know his goodness and his love and the blessing and the greatness of being humble and serving. If you have a need, come as we stand.